Welcome to a bonus episode, number 158 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, thank you for joining us. This is, in fact, the Triple Entente Beer Summit, the third annual. Uh, I, and uh, uh, without further ado, I will take you to the uh, firehouse number 12, where the festivities are about to begin. Welcome to Rational Security. Welcome to the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast. We are lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and law. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Harris of Rational Security, and we are here at the Old Engine 12 restaurant for the, this is the third annual Triple Entente Beer Summit, uh, where we get the Steptoe and the Lawfare and the, and the Rational Security podcast together. We are here in beautiful Bloomingdale, Washington, D.C., my home neighborhood. Thank you all for coming over. I just looked two blocks from here. That's why I like this venue very much. And so he can stumble home. Exactly. <laughs> it's not that far. I just put myself in that direction. I'm here with my good friends Tamara Kaufman Wittes and Susan Hennessy and Ben Wittes of Rational Security and Lawfare. Hi, guys. Hey. And Stuart Baker and Mike Battis of the Steptoe Podcast. Yo. Hello, gents. How are you? And thank you all uh, for coming. Uh, we actually have a, a, a pretty big slate of news to get to today, I would say. Nothing nothing too major happening. Uh, we're going to start the podcast, actually. Uh, with a war. With war. <laughs> Let's have a war. Let's talk about it. Um, so as we record this tonight, actually on Thursday, uh, there is news out of the Pentagon that the uh, uh, Pentagon is drawing up uh, options for a military strike in Syria in response to chemical weapons attacks by Bashar al-Assad. So those uh, of you who work at the Pentagon, stop drinking. Yeah, stop drinking. Now you're going back to you're work, going possibly. Back to work not, um, ju not just that, but we're, you know, those of you who work at the Pentagon, we're going to call on you for comment. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I thought maybe what we would do just quickly to kind of get things going here is um, I'd love to get everybody's sense of just a little bit of the over-under on whether you think there actually will be a military strike. And then let's kind of unpack exactly what got us to this moment. But Ben, what's your over-under? Over-under is soon loud and not very significant as in uh the, in the bush administration there was a there was actually a great term a, a term of opprobrium of things that they weren't going to do and the term was pounding sand uh and i think what we're going to see is uh relatively quick pound sand pounding I think that President Trump in the past few hours has received a memo, opened it up, and said, holy shit, there are no good options on this memo to his great shock. Bring me options. Uh, bring me a better, easier option. Uh, and I think he's, for the first time, confronting the reality that there is no good option. Uh, I think of the many, many bad options on the table, he picks the one that makes the biggest, loudest uh, explosion. So I say we probably are going to war. Okay. Tomorrow. All right, I'm going to be the cynic on the panel. I don't think we're going to war in Syria. Um, I think it's it's vaguely possible that uh, that we'll do some kind of standoff strike if we have a sense that the Russians will not uh, retaliate. Uh, in other words, if it's been cooked. Um, but otherwise, no. I think he'll look at the options. The options suck. I think the military will inevitably 
emphasize the downside risks of escalation and retaliation. They will note that we are increasing our presence on the ground, not only in Syria and Iraq, but now uh, also getting more deeply involved in Yemen, which means that if a strike impinges in any way on Iranian interests, which it inevitably will, uh, they have lots of options to retaliate. Uh, so I think adding that all up, assuming there's a rational calculus, which is a big assumption in this day and age, I think he will do nothing. And I think they will find a wonderful story to spin about why they're doing nothing. Um, but I'll, I'll just make one last note, which is that for those of you who haven't seen, uh, there's a great little essay by Cap Hicks in War on the Rocks about policy volatility and the Trump administration. Uh, and she said that we all need to um, reckon with the inevitability that this is an administration that does not have coherent approaches, it doesn't have strategic objectives, and it's going to be changing its mind every day. And I think this Syria example is going to be a very telling one. Stuart. Yeah, it, it does seem to me like we have to, this is an administration that's going to have to make every single mistake uh, uh, in order to recognize it as a mistake. Uh, uh, but I, I sort of like... Um, Soon, loud, and insignificant. That sounds like a, uh, a whole program. Mike? <laughs> like a rock band. <laughs> Who knew that war was so complicated? <laughs> war is hard, you guys. You know, wow. Gosh, I thought it was easy. I well, thought you I could just lob a few missiles in and everything would be all right. I think, you know, they got to come down with tomorrow. I think, I think Trump will claim uh, that he got Assad to agree to stop using chemical weapons, yada, 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 and claim victory and, and uh, try to change the subject to something else. And I'm so, actually going to predict... So wait, what does the audience think? Oh. Yeah. Yeah, we, 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 we've got several options on the table. I think we should... We should Ra raise your hands if you think we're going to bomb. No, no, not, not, the, 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 the podcast audience can't hear raised hands. <laughs> I'll, I'll give a sense. Should we do cheering? Options. I don't know if you want to cheer Seems for bombing, like that. though. That seems so weird. <laughs> I mean, How about I just give a visual yeah. approximation of hands? So we'll who thinks we're actually going to invade Syria tonight? Oh, There's yeah. like one hand. One who hand. thinks it's not going to happen? Invade. Fuck you. We got to we take about a third on, on not going to happen. So who thinks it's going to be loud soon and insignificant? A lot of people. Right. That's probably the ben majority of the, the That was like a third. What are you talking about? <laughs> Who thinks he's not going to do anything? That's like hundreds of people. <laughs> <laughs> like six. That's six people. Six, six, six people. It's, a, it's hundreds of people if you divide it by 25. So I'm actually going to go in, 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 the, in the camp that thinks we are going to do something. It'll probably be insignificant. Um, and as a note, uh, Pentagon reporters were told to basically go home, have dinner, but be ready to come back to work tonight, which may mean nothing. Uh, but there's at least that that's been thrown out there as a possible uh, stay on call. Uh, one question I have, though, we were talking about this uh, in the newsroom at, at the Journal before I came over, was we go from uh, about 48 hours ago when the policy was, um, as stated by Rex Tillerson and others, uh, the future of Assad is up for the Syrian people to decide, never mind how they would actually decide that. Uh, Assad is going to stay to... Now a total 180 on this. Now we're talking about regime change. We're talking about uh, you're seeing the president react to what is, uh, without question, the, the appalling chemical weapons attack in Syria. I'm interested he in getting... He saw it on television. He did see it on television. And that's meaningful. Yeah? Well, this is what I want to get at, though. I really think there is something to discuss here, which is that I think President Trump has clearly had a very profound emotional reaction 
to what he saw. And he may be to some degree also reacting to the criticism that was lobbed against the White House for its statement, which many people, Republican and Democrat, thought did not do enough to actually forcefully condemn those attacks. But we are in a situation now where we have gone from one policy all the way over to the other end of the needle onto another policy in a very, very short period of time with no obvious facts on the ground changing. Assad so, has been butchering his own people for many, many years. So what the hell happened? So Shane, this, this is exactly why sand will be pounded. Um, because, so it, once you have gone from, it is out, you know, it's outrageous that uh, Barack Obama let this red line mean nothing. And by the way, he shouldn't do anything because we shouldn't be in a war with Syria. And by the way, we should team up with Assad uh, to counter ISIS. To overnight, and quite literally overnight, uh, you know, I I'm shocked, shocked to see that chemical weapons are being used here against children. Uh, it is really, really difficult to go back the next night to don't do anything at all. You have to this at least pause for an airstrike. I think <laughs> anybody else that might be true, but but I think I think it's entirely plausible that Donald Trump wakes up tomorrow. He has wiped these unpleasant memories from his vision because he's refilled his head with whatever crap he's you, watched in the you news need, that morning, need, and he forgets all about it. Because need, I don't think he had a profound emotional reaction. No, you I think need he had a shallow one. You need one airstrike as a palate cleanser. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's like that piece of wasabi between the pieces of sushi. You, if you, you gotta have it. Wait, it, fine. So we can, we can have a lighthearted conversation about, about his calculus, but I, I will note that listen, watching the video, it did seem to be an uncharacteristically genuine moment of empathy. And perhaps the first such moment of empathy we've seen from this president on any issue with respect to any audience. And I, I, I will say that's meaningful, but I don't think it leads him to military action for the reasons I stated. Okay, but, but, no, but, 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 but Tammy, but how, how do you go from, you know, from, oh, just, you know, team up with him, he's, he's a strong guy, stronger than our previous president, uh, team up with him against ISIS, uh, yeah, okay. to a profound, real, emotional reaction of empathy back to do nothing without doing anything. I, I just, how there, do you do there, that? There will be a face-saving mechanism. And I think just as one source of the empathy was probably the outrage that he got from his Jordanian visitor um, and the outrage he heard from other leaders in the region, uh, there will probably be a number of governments ready to help him find an exit ramp from this. Um, for all that the, the European governments have reacted with predictable dismay and disgust and outrage and et cetera, they're not interested in seeing uh, the U.S. go down this pathway in Syria. The Russians are not interested in it. And frankly, I, I don't think for all their bluster, most of the Arab governments want to see the United States go down this path in Syria either. So there will be some mechanism. Um, either, as I said, they'll cook a standoff strike so that nobody overreacts, which will be tricky uh, because you have a bunch of spoilers on the ground. Or uh, they will cook some, some face saver, some solution so that he can claim victory. 
My guess is that they do something like declare that they're going to establish a no-fly zone without sort of understanding that all of the complexities that underlie that decision. There'll be a big announcement. It won't occur for some period of time. And then who knows if they actually are capable of delivering. And that's part of the issue here is that, you know, Trump said this crossed a lot of lines for me. But he hadn't actually established those lines beforehand. So I'm not sure what the basis would be rationally for him to launch an airstrike now or some other military action since he never told Assad you cannot use chemical weapons. I mean, all he's told Assad to date is you're our guy because we're with Putin on this. And that's the other. It's a fact of coercive diplomacy. Yeah, but the issue is, you know, where is Vlad in all this? You know, Russia condemned the attack, but Russia's not about to abandon Assad. Well, they actually put out a statement today, according to the AP, that said our support for Russia and for Assad is not unconditional, which was an interesting. And that's the end game. At the same time, Putin called Netanyahu reportedly in the Israeli press and said that it was inappropriate to blame the Syrian regime for this attack. It was Obama's fault. I mean, Trump's already established that, right? This is all Obama's fault. We got three years we can use that one. Well, what happens? So let's just, I think probably most people in this room think something may happen, but it'll be insignificant. But then Trump, who spent the first part of his outrage at this attack, blaming it on President Obama, because essentially saying by not enforcing your red line, you enabled Assad to do this. And then his administration essentially said, we want Assad to stay, and he does it again. It seems to me that if the strike, if there's one, is not significant, then Trump has put himself exactly where he said Obama was, well, which is being feckless and, and, and demonstrating to, this, to Assad that you can get away with it and that there's no credibility uh, or force behind our statements, however you know, profoundly outraged they may be. But that's, that's, that's but, but, been true. But that's even more true if you do nothing at all, right? It, it, if, if you announce retroactively that there were a lot of lines and only some of them were red, but some of them were other kind of color-coded lines. By the way, what other lines are there? Are there like purple lines and blue lines? There's a line there's in the blue sand. Lines. There's a line yeah, in the there's sand. Line. There's, one, there's, one more, there's one more issue here. When, and this emphasizes the law in lawfare rather than the warfare. The fair. Uh, the, the fair. <laughs> and that is, you know, Neil Gorsuch is going to get confirmed to the Supreme Court tomorrow. Is Trump going to want to step on his own big uh, good Ooh, news story? By, by that's, actually, military, that's actually a real... That's actually you a probably real. zeroed in on the actual <laughs> calculus that's going on. There, right? I, yeah, I'm, I don't mean it as a joke. I mean, the man no, needs no, a I win. Think, no, I don't either. <laughs> yeah, don't All right, the audience looks like they're about to burst into tears. All right. <laughs> they should. Let's, so, let's go on to the other uh, tragic to comedy uh, of, of the week. Uh, which I like to call the Unmasquerade Ball, or Darkness right. at Nunez. <laughs> that is not canned laughter, by the way. We, 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 actually, we actually need audience input. Stuart is being unmasked as we speak. Whoa. Let the record Show reflect. Show us your face, U.S. person one. Let the record reflect that Stuart Russia has donned the now banned... Yes. Uh, Putin gay clown mask. <laughs> it's pretty which, awesome. Which, it by is. the way, it you really know, is. you should all get on your Twitter accounts and share. And if you happen really? to know how to write in, in Cyrillic, um, you know, share it with a Russian comment because that, that image is awesome and the Russians just banned it. 
I, in fact, I'm going to give it away with one of our priceless mugs. <laughs> so Representative Devin Nunes, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, uh, announced this morning, uh, taking a little break from the Russia probe, going to step aside, let some of my buddies take it over. Got these left-wing activists making accusations about me, mishandling classified information and stuff. Um, Why would they say a thing like that? Right. Yeah, left, so, left, left-wing activists like Susan Hennessy and me. Right. <laughs> so this was just the latest uh, twist in this, you know, this bizarre ballet that has been going on all week where Nunes is now stepping aside uh, after he, as I put it on Twitter, in case you missed it, Guy who accused people of mishandling classified information is accused of mishandling classified information to lob his accusation. So I think that's basically where we are right now. Um, uh, where do we even begin? Um, you know, it, it, it strikes me that the whole question of unmasking what Nunes was really trying to get at by making this accusation that Susan Rice had somehow been going through and unredacting people's names and in intelligence reports for which a scintilla of evidence, not a scintilla of evidence has been provided, and she denies it for the record, um, was all actually part of either A, a massive campaign to leak the uh, information about conversations Trump personnel were having, or B, some sort of you know step in what I think Nunes views as some big conspiracy of reverse targeting that's actually been used by Obama administration officials for, for several years. Um, I guess A, were you guys surprised that he stepped aside and... Uh, B, what the hell is going on? So I, 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 I am more uh, sympathetic to uh, Nunes than most uh, uh, because I think there is, there is a plausible concern here that the uh, Obama administration, maybe in the course of the fight with Bibi Netanyahu, discovered that they could learn a lot about what the, uh, their opponents were planning by looking at the uh, fight over, uh, by, by looking at the intelligence that was being collected against uh, uh, foreign nationals uh, who were talking to Americans. And that that uh, revealed a lot about Netanyahu's plans and his domestic allies' plans, and that Susan Rice found that kind of useful and reverted to it uh, in the uh, 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 the transition to uh, the Trump administration when a lot was happening that uh, the old Obama administration didn't like. That's like okay. So, so, so Stuart, if, if, if anybody but you said that that string of sentences, I, 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 I would merely be interested in what substances you were consuming. But because it's you, and because of my extreme regard for you. I wanna I wanna understand is that just speculation or is there some evidentiary basis for it? So there it is mostly speculation, but we know that uh, uh, transcripts of uh, Mike Flynn were uh, uh, collected and read and utilized. Uh, so there is and there were stories that said yes, there's been surveillance of Flynn. Um, so it's not at all unreasonable for uh, a hyper-partisan uh, White House on either side uh, of the, the partisan divide to say, wow, I wonder if those horrible people that we hate are engaged in inappropriate uh, surveillance. But isn't it also the case that if you're the national, and we should say, as we reported this in the journal, that no one is saying Susan Rice unmasked Flynn in the Kislyak conversations. Let's right. just put that on the table. But if you're the national security advisor and you get a report that indicates that some unnamed U.S. citizen is trying to cut a side deal 
with Russia or some other country while you're the national security advisor, is that not a good reason to say Absolutely. who the hell is that person? No, there, there, there are multiple reasons to want to uh, unmask uh, uh, intelligence so you can understand it. Uh, but it's very hard in certain circumstances to separate uh, your desire to have legitimate intelligence uh, int uh, information from that from your desire to have political information. So look, I'm, I'm moved by both your and Chairman Nunes' um, change of heart on these uh, surveillance I, I, issues. Uh, look, I think you're, you're not just being more sympathetic than most to Devin Nunes. Like, you're, other than Mrs. Nunes, that's about <laughs> the thing that I've heard anybody say about the man, uh, including Republicans. Look, what, what is being described here is the ordinary conduct of, of intelligence. It's incidental collection. No one can uh, can unilaterally unmask someone. You know that's not how it works. Right. Devin Nunes knows that's not how it works. Uh, so even if there was uh, the intention of wanting to abuse it, there are lots and lots of safeguards in place. There are extensive records that are kept of this stuff. This story about the Israeli uh, surveillance, which is something that Eli Lake sort of pulled back from the, the you know, depths of the internet a few days ago, uh, was, yeah, that was never the Wall confirmed. Never independently confirmed, and, and by the way, never accounted for the fact that there are special rules for the handling of, of members of Congress's information. Never sort of addressed that stuff. So on its own, right, this is sort of, this is an old story that never quite stood up. Now it's coming back. Uh, look, this is about changing the story. Uh, Director Comey, Admiral Rogers uh, gave this testimony, uh, said that uh, there was nothing to substantiate Donald Trump's comments about wiretapping. All of a sudden, Devin Nunes well, runs wait, wait, out. Wait, wait, wait. We're changing the, 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 the subject from the four weeks of wallowing in. You don't spell wiretap with two Ps, and, and the president <laughs> didn't actually order wiretapping himself. I, you know, I, yes, granted, but why is it not appropriate to say, gee, this is a context where the partisan temptations are very substantial, and the partisan uh, inclination to give the other guy the benefit of the doubt is missing. Uh, and it's perfectly appropriate to say, let's make sure there weren't abuses, and let's ask the question, given the hyper-partisan world we live in, uh, what else should we be doing about kinds of uh, intelligence and intelligence invest investigations to make sure that that temptation to misuse them for partisan purposes is as minimized as possible? Right. So look, if this is a genuine change of heart of wanting to call for surveillance reform, anytime Congress and the White House <laughs> is uncomfortable uh, with legal practices, that tends to be a sign that it's time to change the laws. Fine, let's definitely have that debate. The insinuation that there was something illegal or improper that occurred here, there's just no evidence of that whatsoever. And whenever you look at sort of the hypocrisy side by side of the testimony that uh, the, the, the line of questioning that uh, Devin Nunes and others made during this Hipsy hearing, entirely focused on leaks, mentioning Susan Rice by name, Trey Gowdy really did a sort of cute trick, uh, sig uh, you know, telegraphing their play uh, in the hearing. Uh, then to come out and say, and I don't know that he actually revealed classified information, he certainly wasn't very careful in the handling of classified information. I mean, usually like give a little bit more what, time. What, did, what, he, what he disclosed was there are FISA intercepts, they collect on foreign agents, and they have um, Americans talking to foreign agents that they minimize. 
that's basically what he disclosed. So then why did, he, exactly. why did he recuse himself then if he has nothing? So if he, he didn't, didn't recuse himself. Well, he's, he's, he, well, he's stepping well, aside I mean, as an ethics investigator. Yes, and, 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 and you guys gave issue. enormous credit to Susan Rice, who has, by the way, denied it, absolutely. Uh, he denies that he did anything wrong with the, uh, in this case, but... You know, rather yeah, but we saw him do it. We heard him say it. Let me let me just say. Let so me, I, I, let me just say hold on, from, from the perspective of uh, the sort of PR competition here, who's controlling the message? If you're having an argument about relative degrees of hypocrisy, I think the White House has already succeeded in changing the subject. Exactly. Yeah, and I and I agree. I, I think the fact that we're talking about this is proof that we have been successfully trolled by the administration. That we're talking about this hey, instead hey, of and, and by instead me. of the, the <laughs> instead of the Trump campaign's collusion with Russia to so, to affect our election. And so I have a yes or no question for Stewart. Um, if you had been the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, as I very much wish you had been. Um, and this situation had arisen, would you, yes or no, have con done this, the following things in sequence? One, <laughs> go this is a setup, right? <laughs> this is some Aikido nonsense here. Go to the White House uh, evening to receive a bunch of information. The second day, have a press conference announcing that you're going to the White House to brief the president on that information. Go to the White House, brief the president on the information that you received from the White House. And then uh, have a press conference on your way out. I, 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 I think I would have spent much more time with Mrs. Nunes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're on the same page. I'll just say, to close this, I, I, I tweeted this a while back, and this is an audience that will appreciate this, which is that uh, when Section 702 of FISA is either not reauthorized or is significantly amended, Devin Nunes' key role in making that happen will be a very interesting story. It's actually, that, that's actually a really profound and important point. I mean, you know, there's a very serious component of this, which is that the, a, a, a very important set of authorities are going to expire on December 31st in the absence of co congressional uh, reauthorization of those authorities. And uh, one of the committees that has to draft that legislation and has to put forward that legislation is chaired by one Devin Nunes. And, you know, whatever one thinks of this set of issues, it is very hard to imagine that he did credit to that committee uh, or put it in a position to credibly uh, credibly uh, uh, put forth uh, reauthorization legislation. And I think the likelihood that six months from now we're going to be facing a significant crisis with respect to intelligence authorities is much higher as a result of this episode than it was a week and a half ago. I agree, and I, I do think this is the significant point. There has always been sort of the outside ideological debates over the reauthorizations of name whatever section is up for the next uh, the next round of reauthorization. The committees have always been uh, inoculated from that. There was there's always been sort of sure robust debate within about what level of reforms could be implemented before there is a, a overly significant operational consequence. But a very disciplined discussion among people that know and respect one another uh, with the assumption, with some shared assumptions about uh, the importance of the programs. 
that partisanship and ideology has now infected the committees themselves, uh, which I think for the first time really has people genuinely scared that there are not enough votes here. Um, and so this is just, this is really irresponsible on the part of people who have defended these programs as important. I believe in good faith. The question is whether or not they were not being honest before or they're not being honest now. Or they've had a massive change of heart. So I, I'm more, much more hopeful about this because I think there's room for um, reauthorizing 702 and at the same time adopting new constraints on uh, uh, foreign efforts to interfere with our elections and uh, uh, controls on partisan temptations with respect to the use of masking and unmasking of uh, identity. Uh, we, we could end up with a bipartisan compromise that kind of trumps the, the old debate about uh, whether you should do back-end searches with the warrant or not. You beautiful optimist, Stuart. Always see. <laughs> All right, the let's, let's move on to our third topic. Uh, Steve Bannon, don't let the door of the Situation Room hit you on the way out. <laughs> can, can I just say that the number of you know government lawyers who are clapping at that <laughs> is itself a very striking thing. The deep state is representing. <laughs> That's why this is a podcast and not a, a video. Okay. <laughs> if there were a video, you'd all be unmasked. Um, so uh, President Trump decided this week uh, it was not maybe such a good idea that Steve Bannon had a position on the Principles Committee. Uh, uh, an executive order had previously made it so. And from my own reporting, I will say, uh, suggested that Steve Bannon wrote that part of the executive order himself. So that must have stung. Um, uh, there's, 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 I guess there's two questions in here. One, I mean, well, one A is how significant was it? We can talk about this if you guys want. Of how significant it was that Steve Bannon, as the president's chief political advisor, had a seat on the principles committee to begin with, which we've kind of chewed over. What I'm more interested in is, you know, A, what is the practical policy significance of him now being off? I will say, uh, versus B, the political optics of it. I'll just say from my own my own standpoint, the fact that he's off, it was questionable whether he was that much of an influence anyway, because I think he only went to one meeting. I read a lot more into this into the sort of dimming star of Steve Bannon, and I think the lens of palace intrigue is how you're supposed to view things in the White House, because I think that's kind of how the president views them. But what do you guys think? Yeah, I think the most significant story is that he threatened to quit. He stamped his little feet, and somebody said, "Like, who cares? Get out of here, then." And and I think like that's that's coming on the heels of sort of the disastrous healthcare efforts, where he apparently went to the House GOP and said, "You vote or else," and they said, "You know, go pound sand to tie it all together thematically." <laughs> uh, I think we're gonna have to call this the pounding sand edition. <laughs> but that's right. That now that message has been received. He's been unmasked once again, tying it all together. Uh, wow. as, as being someone who, who is sort of a paper tiger here, right? There's, there's not much behind. He's a big bully. He's a lot of luster. But at the end of the day, he's not married to the president's daughter. And so he is not actually the center of power in the White House. And so as, his for, as, as fortunes fluctuate, uh, he, may, he may, may well find himself sort of on the way out, not just of the Situation Room, but of the whole administration. Jerry Kushner well, knifed him while he was in Iraq. Yeah, I mean that is some serious. Yeah, yeah, but but he, but, but he, he had his big boy flak vest but, on today. But he, 
But he called Jared Kushner, according to your former employer, uh, the, the, the Daily Beast. He called him a, uh, a, a, a what was it? A, a globalist cuck. Yeah, a glo- globalist cuck, which, which sounds like rootless cosmopolitan to me. Uh. Yeah. So, look, I, I actually think the, the question of how much has Steve Bannon lost is less interesting and less relevant for policy than the question of who won how much. And, you know, whether it's Jared Kushner or H.R. McMaster that we should really be focusing on here because I think for those of us who work in the field, what we'd like to see is not just a a figure as um, unpalatable as Bannon getting marginalized, but we'd like to see the establishment of regular order in the interagency. Uh, We'd like to believe that the National Security Advisor is asserting his authority over uh, his part of the White House and over the process of national security policymaking. And I would love to be reassured by this decision that that's the case, but I just don't know yet. And and that's partly because Bannon in and of himself is not that important uh, to the Principles Committee. And the real problem is that it's not at all clear that the Principles Committee is that important to national security policymaking in the Trump administration. We just... We don't see a regular interagency process functioning. We don't see a Secretary of State who goes to principles committees that we know of. Uh, and, we, and we know from other reporting that Tom Shannon, who is the acting Deputy Secretary of State, has not been invited to all principles committee meetings. So, I mean, my concern is more about the overall process and less the personalities involved. And, and so maybe this is a positive step. Maybe McMaster is starting to get a handle on things. but. The cabinet agencies have a huge role to play here, and they have a long way to go. Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 can, can I don my Stuart Baker mask for a minute? The, the, the one that looks like Stuart <laughs> rather than the one, the one that looks like <laughs> Vladimir Putin. Um, and be the optimist. I, I, I actually think this is a big deal and, and, and of, in a very good way. Uh, I agree with you, Tamara, that uh, establishing the regular order still takes some doing. But the first thing you need to do if you want to establish a a, a congenial environment on the playground is throw out the crazy bullies. And there were a bunch of crazy bullies. One of them uh, is no longer on the principals committee. Uh, There's still the small matter of the deputies committee. Um, But, um, you know, I think the, the process of purging from a, uh, you know, from a process, the people whose presence and involvement are simply inconsistent with the reasonable functioning of that process, and whose presence in that process we know to have been highly destructive in the past, uh, is a very good thing. And that doesn't mean it's a complete thing. But if, if, if you had said to me two days ago, what would be a really good sign that H.R. McMaster is beginning to establish the regular order, I would say, oh, you could revise the, 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 you know, the, 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 the damn directive so that, so that Steve Bannon isn't on the principles committee anymore. Okay. I, don't, I, I don't disagree with you. Like I said, you 
that might be the case. I don't think this is really the triumph of the regular order. Uh, it's uh, it's it's the triumph of the Washington press, which made Bannon into the uh, the villain, uh, uh, and is going Poor to celebrate his sweet departure. Steve Bannon, who never did anybody any wrong. Oh well, uh, he, he totally didn't run a news organization. He was he, he probably was the ideological heart of the Trump campaign, which of course is why everybody up here dislikes him. I, I, but getting rid of him is more about saying, yeah, we elected the man, now we're just going to try to make sure that none of his ideas survive. But, uh, but if you're thinking about regular order, um, for McMaster to say, I want to take the one guy in the White House who believes more than anything in regular order and interagency, Tom Bossert, and I want to stand him up next to Bannon so that I can kill Bannon by shooting through Bossert. I, <laughs> you're, not, you're not really reviving regular order. You're just saying, hey, I got a weapon and he doesn't, so I'm taking it over. It's sort of like uh, uh, the Soviet Union saying, God, there's all these Germans on my border. I better invade Finland. But, Stuart, let me press you on that because, I mean, it, it, the president went along with this change. I mean, he's not listening to us in the fake news press, right, who, you know, maybe have made – Particularly not you. Especially not me. Um, so, but, but, but he, I just want to challenge you a little bit on that premise because it seems like if he, is, he, is he now actually listening to us and giving into the perception that Bannon is somehow – Toxic. I mean, it seems to me he just doesn't like that Bannon is getting more press than he is in some cases, or being called the phantom president and you know axed him because he was you know, getting too close to the sun. Yeah, there's there's there is there's nobody on Bannon's side, obviously, in the White House or outside, so he's an easy target to, to pick on. Uh, and uh, uh, and my guess is he's he's standing on a banana peel. This is not going to be easy to uh, recover from. Uh, but I think that leaves you with a White House that has no idea what it stands for. I think you guys are incredibly, wildly over-optimistic about what this means. Bannon lost a battle. Whether it was Kushner who did him in or McMaster, we don't know. The question is whether this is the beginning of his demise or not. Because even if he's not on the principles committee, he's still the guy that was calling the shots on health care. He's still the guy that wrote the, the cockamamie immigration ban. And he's... He's in everything. And even if he's not on the principles committee, um, if he's doing all those other things still, he's going to have the profound impact that he's had to date. Uh, if, if this is the beginning of his demise, that's the significant thing. And if, and if the, the globalist cucks take over, that's a big change from where we have been for the first, whatever it's been, 70-something days. Right. The, the other remarkable thing is, you know, we're all celebrating uh, Steve Bannon being removed from the Principles Committee. Somehow we've moved off the story that Steve Bannon is in the White House, right? Somebody who once told his wife that her, his children could not attend a school because too many Jewish children attended, right? I mean, we've already moved so far past sort of the Overton window of what is acceptable and normal to think about in terms of White House staffing, but it's going to be a long time before we find our way back to anywhere we've ever been before. If we ever do. Well, you get what you voted for, I guess. Yeah. Um, all right, let's move on to audience questions. I know you're all itching and you've been drinking. <laughs> oh, actually, Remember that the two. mics are can live. I, can can I do object lessons? Oh, you want to do an object lesson? I want to do object lesson. Just, just one oh, wow. thing. All right. I want to recommend. You get to go first, though. After I want to recommend a lesson. book that okay. I've been reading called Secondhand Time to this audience. It is actually uh, uh, won lots of prizes. It is 
the oral history of the Soviet Union. You know, this woman has gone around and interviewed uh, people who succeeded in the transition from the Soviet Union, people who failed. Incredible stories about, you know, none of us have heard. We've all heard the story of the Third Reich endlessly. Uh, Who has heard the story about the executioners who were missing their quotas until they started getting trigger finger massages at the end of every day. The, she interviewed the guy who said, yeah, this is what happened. This is, you know, we, we had this problem, and so they used to give me a massage, and then a bucket of cologne and a bucket of vodka at the end of every shift. The story, the insight into the, the human cost of the Soviet Union and the transition to whatever it is that they have now is astonishing. It's endless, too. What's the name of the book? Uh, secondhand time. And who's it by? Svetlana something or other. So, so, so it is the something op- or other. Uh, I'll get it for you. I will get it. I will get it for you. <laughs> so I, will, I, I really didn't expect Stuart to be the one to give us a preview of what we can all look forward to as we fall oh, under the shadow oh. of Vladimir Putin. God. This is way too depressing. Okay, so I'm going to do so, an object uh, lesson is, and to lift it, this it, up it, real quick before we go to questions. Svetlana Alexevich. Uh, I just want to point this out. I was very proud of this. This was a really little bit of investigative reporting on my part. Then we'll go to questions. So the Strategic Initiatives Group, which Steve Bannon runs. With like What's the Strategic Initiatives Group? Right. There's, What's no strategic There's no Strategic Initiatives Group. These are not the Strategic I've Initiative Groups you're looking this. for. So there was an article in The Hill today, or a couple of days ago, saying, White House officials said there's no such thing as a strategic initiatives group. We've never heard of this. I don't know where you're getting this idea. This is one That'd photo. Be a terrible on my, thing. A terrible thing. So this is one photo on my uh, Twitter feed. It says Office of the Strategic Initiatives Group. You know, the one the White House said didn't exist. And there it is, Room 169, Strategic Initiatives Group. <laughs> I'm very proud of this object lesson. <laughs> All right, let's move on to questions. That was, that was shoe leather. Oh, yeah, good. that was. No, no, yeah. I was, I was, it was sent to him. No, my, <laughs> my little sparrows. <laughs> we got some Game of Thrones fans out there. All right, go ahead, sir. So, so I'd like to whipsaw us right back to Syria and ask, uh, what do you guys think would happen if uh, uh, this were sort of lobbed over to Congress, as was attempted uh, last time? Um, what would emerge from there, and would that change your calculus from earlier about uh, if nothing is going to happen, sand pounded, or uh, uh, something small and insignificant, or full-out war? It's a really so good question. It is a great question, and it, it just so happens that um, in September of 2013, uh, the, the morning that Lavrov and Kerry announced their CW deal and therefore made moot the question of congressional authorization to use force in Syria, I was up on the Hill uh, doing a briefing to a group of, uh, of members, Democrats and Republicans, and the, the relief in the room at this news was so palpable. Um, these guys were thrilled they did not have to vote on this. Uh, and that was then. I have little doubt that you could not get an authorization use force out of this Congress, even in the face of this atrocity. Uh, and so I think it would be a great way for the president to get himself off the hook, except Obama already tried it. I think that this actually might be one of the good news stories of the Trump administration, that uh, as the presidency is weaker and weaker, we might see other branches actually asserting 
occupying their constitutional mandates for the first time in a very long time. And so I think that Congress might have no choice but to fill the vacuum, especially if Trump decides this is actually not my job and I would prefer not to make this decision. I can see him tossing it over to Congress. Can you actually fill a vacuum with vacuum? Yeah, so let me splash cold water on that. Look, I think that, first of all, there is a mechanism by which we are likely to force Congress to address the question of authorization with respect to ISIS. But it isn't the actual question of whether we're going to go to war because that's not a forcing function. As a functional matter, the president can order it himself if he wants to and he cannot order it himself if he wants to do that. The mechanism, ironically, is Trump's promise to bring new people to Guantanamo because if you bring an ISIS person to Guantanamo and that person files a habeas action, then the current AUMF is suddenly in front of the D.C. Circuit. And so I think the... And that's very likely to happen unless, of course, Trump doesn't mean the whole thing about bringing bad hombres to Guantanamo, which is quite possible. But if he does, they're likely to be ISIS people, and then you're likely to force, by dint of litigation, Congress to confront the question of whether to change the terms of the authorization. But make no mistake, it will not be war that forces Congress to exercise its war powers. It'll be litigation. Okay, sir, right here, you have a question. Thank you very much. Just a number of you have touched on this, but could the panel please do some crystal ball gazing with respect to the deputies, the future of having some undersecretaries, Having some secretaries uh, in some cases. Are you doing your boss's boss's job right now, sir? (laughs) Who isn't? (laughs) Thank you very much. Whether the deputies, whether the uh, uh, the people who actually run government. Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing they've gone this long without it. Um, You know, I think we're now starting to see the growing pains, or or the not growing pains, of having no sort of staffing. Right that. Uh, eventually, Trump is going to have to uh, make decisions that have not been vetted, that sort of haven't been pushed up through the process. He's going to make more and more mistakes. Uh, how long he can hold off against the personnel choices that his secretaries want for themselves, which I really think is one of the biggest issues right now. Uh, we'll see. Um, maybe Ivanka will come in and change everybody's minds. Yeah, I, I actually think the issue, I mean, I think Susan's, correct to point out the, that there's greater likelihood of poor policy decisions when you're not sifting through options and pushing them up. But I actually think that the, the bigger issue is trying to push guidance down. It's not happening. There's such a big gap. And so essentially you have these guys who are taking decisions and they're trying to pull levers, but the levers aren't connected to anything out in the agencies. And so things the, the things that they decide don't get implemented or can't get implemented how does news get down to the working level? And so to me, that's that's a bigger problem, but it's one that it will take them a long time to notice. Um, I, I also think that, you know, the, the standoffs over personnel, um, and particularly, although not exclusively, in the national security agencies, um, tells you something about what the White House, what the president wants from his cabinet secretaries. He wants them to be essentially 
chief operating officers for their agencies, not decision makers, not senior officials, and certainly not speaking on their own. So, you know, the best way to keep them kind of hemmed in is to not give them people who can give them ideas about what they might want to say or do. I completely agree with you, as I think I have on everything tonight. And it's interesting to me, a lot of this comes... I'm glad we could share this. It's the eyebrows. This is like Devin and Mrs. Nunes back home. I think Devin's sleeping on the couch these days. I think this all comes back to Bannon, or in large measure. I think he's one of the forces behind holding up the deputies, both because he wants to make sure they have the ideological purity, and because I think this is part of his effort to deconstruct the administrative state. You know, he wants to strip out these positions, not necessarily the deputies, but I think this is all part and parcel. But the irony of this is his defense of what happened today, or whenever it happened yesterday, today, the rule from the Principals Committee is, oh, well, you know, I already did what I set out to do, which was to de-operationalize the NSC. When, in fact, they are just as operational, if not more than, the NSC under the Obama administration. And they're going to have to be more so. And what does that even mean? That means you don't run stuff. The agencies don't run stuff. They just follow instructions. See, I think you're operational. I think you ran Contra, but maybe I'm too mired in history. I was very operational. So I actually think we're overthinking this a little. This is part of the fact that there are warring tribes inside the White House. And in personnel, that means that everybody has to pass muster with all of the warring tribes, and they get to the end of the process, and somebody blackballs them. And that's happening a lot in this process. It's not because of some great conspiracy, because what happens in the agencies is people keep doing, they keep following the guidance they got last, which is probably a year ago. And that's clearly not what anybody who voted for change wanted. Or they do the stuff that is in their organizational DNA, right? CBP is perfectly happy to build walls and to enforce borders and to come up with options for ways to do further vetting of people coming to the United States. That's their organizational DNA. So you will get some policies coming up and some operational action that takes new policies and carries them forward. But what you won't get is any changes of direction that the bureaucracy doesn't like. Okay, who else has a question? There you are. You even got the mic, too. I got the mic. We'll go in the back after this. Thank you, guys. So I want to go back to Syria, and I just want to put the law back in this a little bit and ask you just, I know functionally everybody's talking about the president doing an airstrike, but as a legal matter, sort of could you walk us through how, would it be legal under international law? Would it be, and how can he take this action without sort of any sort of congressional authorization? You could work at the Wall Street Journal. We were asking that very question only an hour ago. Before Ben launches into it, what I'm sure will be an excellent explanation of the legal aspects, the factual predicate of whether or not somebody has, for example, used chemical weapons 
uh, in violation of international law, uh, that's a moment in which it's really important to have a credible intelligence community so that you can come forward uh, to not just the American people but the rest of the world and say, my intelligence community, which I believe and rely on, has presented me with evidence, which I can't share with you, but I take their words and I need all of you to take my word. This is one of those situations in which it really matters that people trust you. Uh, and so Trump may be paying the price for some of his statements about the intelligence community and some of his falsehoods very, very shortly. So the answer to your question, and you know, honestly, I haven't thought about this terribly carefully. It's only been a few hours. Um, but um, number one, of course, you couldn't do this under the AUMF because it's targeted at the regime, uh, which is not covered by the AUMF. Uh, so you would have to do this uh, under some combination of a, a sort of responsibility to protect theory slash humanitarian intervention. Uh, or, um, you know, I suppose you could, you, you, you could uh, the, as I was about to say this, I realized I don't, I don't believe it's plausible, but I suppose you could probably create a kind of theory in which uh, this was an attack on forces with which we are allied in some sense and uh, similar to the theory that we're using uh, in Somalia, where we're responding uh, in self-defense of our allies, right? You could imagine if one of your allies' kids was killed or something, that there was some... Uh, but I think realistically, you're probably working as an international law matter on some kind of humanitarian intervention theory. Um, and, you know, honestly, it's, it's pretty weak. You know, um, Jack Goldsmith did a very un-Jack Goldsmith-like thing and, doing that and it wrote a tweet storm on this very subject. Uh, so maybe if you ask him really nicely, Ben, he might write it up for Locker. You know, as T.S. Eliot wrote of the Rum Tum Tugger, Jack will do as Jack do do and there's no doing anything about it. <laughs> All right, a question in the back. Um, hi, I'm Mika. Hi, guys. Hi, hey, Mika. <laughs> um, so I could actually answer the question about the AUMF in Syria, having spent, having been the person who briefed the House the last time we went to do this on what the legal rationale is, but that's not actually my question, so maybe I'll write a post. If you you should ask. tweet storm this later. I yeah. did tweet storm it earlier, actually. Right. Right. I have a very long tweet storm about the legal standards under both their international and domestic law for going to war, but that's not my question. My question to you guys is, could you opine on where Twitter is now suing the administration over the identity of the alt USCIS, the alt uh, Customs Immigration Service um, Twitter handle, and what that means for America that the administration is seeking the identity behind an anonymous? But the administration yes, is suing Twitter. No, 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 no. Twitter is suing the administration. The administration, so the administration is asking for the information on who these people are, and Twitter is suing so, to stop the administration from so, finding out so, that information. So we were talking about this on the way over, and I'm actually really uh, confused about it, because one thing uh, and that, uh, at least as the complaint was summarized to me, and I haven't read it myself, that is not evident. We made Quinta read it to us from yes, the back. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, that is not evident from the complaint is whether there is a leak investigation ongoing or not. And it seems to me the merits of uh, 
like the merits of the question is a little bit different if there's a suspicion uh, that the government is investigating that one of its employees is leaking material using this Twitter feed than if they're just trying to out some, you know, some person out there who's running a parody Twitter account. And it's not really clear to me from the from the complaint at all what the basis for the investigation at issue is. Yeah, it, like, from the complaint, it's, just, it's not clear what the government was asserting as its reason. They, they cited some sort of like an import, import of materials statute yeah, or something. It, it's not like my best guess, and this is totally uninformed speculation based on Quinta having recited this to us from the, in the car an hour ago, is like this is somebody who uh, is aware of some sort of authority that you can use to subpoena and just sent it out. This there's nothing about this that strikes me as coming out of the general counsel's office at DHS. Stuart, would you have uh, signed yeah, off? Yeah, no, it, it, it has to be some kind of leak investigation, I think. Or a rogue agent. That or, or, or that somebody has, has misappropriated. I, I, you know, when you call it all USCIS, you're not calling it USCIS. They're not, they're not purporting right. to be USCIS. They're not taking over a USCIS And they're not account. leaking substantive information. Yeah. So, 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 Stuart, you, you actually... You know something about this area. Um, what what are the circumstances in which a line agent could get pissed off and just issue an administrative subpoena on his uh, on his own versus uh, what are the circumstances in which this could be a uh, a you know a leak investigation that is you know decided on centrally and reflects actually the views of the administration. I, 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 I actually don't know for sure, but my guess is that this has to be an exercise of standard law enforcement authority that CBP and ICE both have. USCIS does not have that authority. So uh, DHS would probably have to have brought this action, uh, and it would have had to go through central review like any other subpoena decision. All right. Anybody else have a final question for us tonight? Yes, sir, right here. Hi, thanks. Um, I'm starting to worry that this administration, and, and this is just from reading the press, and it, it sort of feels like you know, this constant barrage of information, but it's starting to feel like they're conflating leak with the freedom of speech. And I was wondering, like, how do we sort this out, just the public that doesn't know what's you know, what was potentially classified and what is just people saying their opinions about what's happening in their day-to-day -day lives in working in the administration. I mean, okay, I'll are they allowed to, to talk it's still? It's really simple. Information that we don't want to be out in public, that's leaks. And information that we like being out in public, that's just, you know. Briefing the public. Briefing the public, which is very yeah, sure. important. <laughs> Does that answer your question? It, it is, it is peculiar. This is the first administration that has been really exercised by the last administration's leaks. That's, that, that, that's what they're particularly concerned about because they think they were leaked upon. Right, no one likes being leaked upon. <laughs> I heard some people do. Some well, some people, people. <laughs> It's better to be leaked on than right. leaked on. In Moscow. There, there's, there's a, yeah, is there going to be a Moscow joke now? 
Anyway, my point was that we vest an enormous amount of discretion in, uh, like, this is a huge part of the executive power, right? The, the, the president has a, a lot of investigatory and prosecutorial discretion. Uh, if he wants to abuse it, he, this is one way to do it, right? Have a uh, fake sort of predicate, say you're going after people for leaking, Actually, no, I can't even say the word anymore. <laughs> actually, you know, you're actually going after them for something else. I mean, this was uh, one of the issues in Watergate, right? That the uh, the original investigation was a leaks investigation and not uh, it, it spiraled. The plumbers. Yeah. Look, I want to say a word of sympathy for this in, for the administration on this point. Uh, sincerely, they have been subject to uh, a degree of leaking and a degree of bureaucratic, uh, not sure what to say, uprising. Um, uh, you can call it resistance if you want. You can also call it, uh, you know, insubordination. That's unlike anything we've seen in any of our lifetimes. And they are not wrong to see that as a, uh, you know, a, 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 a condition that the bureaucracy has, and they, you know, they have all kinds of weird words for it, like deep state, but it, it actually reflects something real, which is that they've deeply offended the bureaucracy, and the bureaucracy turns out to, when it bears its fangs, have some pretty serious teeth. Um, I, 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 I think the word insubordination is really strong, and I, I, want, I want to push back on you there, because insubordination implies that there are orders given, there is guidance given, and People are acting contrary to orders, and I just don't see that. I see, I mean, people are expressing their views. They're letting reporters know how they feel about their jobs. You know, when the, when the, attor the acting attorney general of the United States says, I refuse to enforce this, and okay, when that's, and, that's and, one act, and when the uh, the, uh, the the U.S. attorney in, for, for the Southern District of New York when given a routine order of that 40 other people were also given to submit his re resignation, says no. Um, and when a 1,000 State Department officials, and by the way, I'm, I support every single one of them. Um, but Ben, uh, none of those are leaks. And, yeah, and no, no, I'm, I'm not talking about... exactly to the point I, of the question, I, I, I'm I not think it's important to distinguish. Wait, hang on a second. I'm not just talking about leaks. I'm talking about an atmosphere of Dinner which... Dinner in our house is so fun. <laughs> <laughs> an atmosphere... And of, when they of, have the newness is over, oh, you should see it. <laughs> it's an atmosphere of which leaks are a part. And it's an atmosphere in which this White House is not wrong that the bureaucracy is not with them. Now, I want to say that is 99% the White House's fault. But the reality is, you know, irrespective of the origins of it, they are not wrong to perceive that they are perceived correctly as a hostile invading force in this town. Yeah, but it is there, for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. All of the leaks uh, at their core are responses to uh, falsehoods, to lies that have come out of the White House itself. This has all been corrective action on, on the part of the functional bureaucracy of the United States to correct uh, like a a mistransplanted organ or something that is at the top yes, this, of where we are. This, this is, is the body rejecting the transplanted it is, organ. Like, right, 
what what options remain when the president of the United States stands up in front of people and and lies, right, and and says things? This is the system responding. Now, yes, the Yates and and Preet and all this other stuff, there there obviously is some sort of symbolic resistance, some of which is silly. There are also very serious and, and consequential and potentially damaging leaks, but this is the system acting the way we designed a system to act. Well, it, it is somewhat, mostly, maybe largely that. But the leak of General Flynn's, uh, the contents of his FISA intercept, was not that. It was a criminal act, uh, a gross violation of somebody's civil liberties, um, and uh, a deep betrayal of somebody's oath of office. It was a deep betrayal of somebody's commitment to the essential bargain that the Congress uh, struck with the American people in the late 1970s in the post-Watergate era. And people are not wrong to look at that situation and say there is, uh, you know, there there is excess in the response. So look, I'm. Um hundred percent I'm not condoning those particular leaks. That was a situation in which the Vice President of the United States, the National Security Advisor, and the President of the United States said, Michael Flynn did not discuss sanctions in those phone calls. People in the federal government were sitting on information knowing that that was materially false. Now, right or wrong, that decision, that is a predictable response to what's going to happen. And in Kandra, there are not alternative mechanisms available in that situation. Actually, there are. Um, and and, Congress? No, I think you know there is this entity called the FBI that was rather flamboyantly conducting a counterintelligence investigation, though it hadn't yet announced it. Uh, it has now announced it. Um, but you know, for somebody who was genuinely concerned, and by the way, the universe of people with access to those intercepts were generally people who were aware of the existence of that investigation. Um, the decision to go public with that is a decision, you know, to do more than, you know, it's a decision to do more than, than, you know, what we would call routine free speech. But consider this, Ben, if, if that hadn't been done, Mike Flynn would still be our national security advisor. Look, and I'm, we would not be talking about the, the possibility of a little glimpse of light and the, the possibility that there's a reinstitution of regular order in the NSC. And Mike, if Edward Snowden had not uh, disclosed all of the things that he disclosed that shouldn't have been disclosed, and that I do not, do not I think he is rightly a fugitive in, in Moscow as a result of having disclosed, there was some policy that wouldn't have been made that I personally think is a good idea and I like the USA Freedom Act, and I like some of the consequences of that. And we don't generally say that the, you know, that, you know, we don't generally apply a sort of ends justify the means kind of evaluation of this. And so to go back to the original question, most of this is routine free speech that we should absolutely be not, not merely tolerating, but encouraging. Some of it is not. So I've been the fundamental the, I, problem I, I, that the administration has, though, is that they have such little credibility that whenever they say, well, yes, there are legitimate reasons to investigate these leaks, and then there are lots of illegitimate reasons, nobody believes them whenever they offer the legitimate reasons in the cases that they do. So I, I, I've been in four different administrations, and when, when you're the incoming Dems, 
meeting with the career people is like a college reunion. And when you're incoming Republicans, it's like the occupation of Belgium. I, I'm sorry. I'm going to roll my eyes for those of you that are not in the podcast, not in the podcast studio this right is, now. It, it, it has always been this way. By, by far the most talented people uh, and the, the 90% of the people who work in the federal government are completely out of sympathy with most of what the Republican Party wants to All do. All the best people. I, yeah. I, I, it, it, it's true. I, you know, and, you know, I... I to the extent that I succeeded, it was by suborning Democrats to do a, a few good things. I, I, and, uh, I, and so this, is, this has always been the case. What's different this time is that the, uh, the Democrats who constitute the permanent bureaucracy, I don't think deep state is the right term. I, it's so uh, much catchier, though. Have, have, have been told, Resist at all costs. This is an illegitimate president. This is an illegitimate uh, administration. Uh, and what we're seeing is a more spirited resistance that is going to take longer to dissipate, uh, um, especially if they never appoint any undersecretaries. Well, I think that I, I don't think you're wrong to say that, Stuart, but I do think it gives short shrifts to Mike's point, which is that this isn't just an administration that many people may judge as illegitimate. It's an administration that many people judge as dangerous. A clear and present danger. Yeah. And, and I do think that, that that creates a different calculus for people within the bureaucracy. And you can say at the end of the day, look, Edward Snowden thought the United States was acting in dangerous ways and, and the ends don't justify the means. And that's a, a fine argument. But I, I think that it is it's too easy to dismiss this as mere partisan griping. And I think that that actually is exactly what Trump is trying to do in distracting from things that are far more substantive. I, I, I think it's, it would be fair to wait for them to actually do something dangerous instead of say things that the New York Times editorial board considers dangerous. Well, now That's we a know low that blow, the security advisor was, you know, is under active investigation, and I, I think that was in fact a dangerous yeah, appointment. Yeah, I, I actually agree with you. All, All right. right, I know Great. we said we had one final question, but I'm going to let you have the one real last question, sir. So there you go. Thank you. Um, so going back to uh, the uh, Devin Nunes uh, temporary recusal this morning. Uh, so. He's under investigation by the Office of Congressional Ethics and the House Ethics Committee, which includes, among its ranks, Trey Gowdy of South Carolina. But the thing is, is that he's being replaced by, uh, on the Intelligence Committee, uh, Mike Conaway of Texas, uh, Tom Rooney of Florida, and Trey Gowdy of South Carolina. So is there any grounds for any sort of conflict of interest there? And what's the mechanism to reconcile that? What, what do we do about Trey Gowdy? That's the real question. Well, right? It sounds like Trey Gowdy is the man behind the curtain. Paul. No, so I, 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 I want to say a, 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 like a word in defense of the insanity that is the House Intelligence Committee, minus Devin Nunes, because I, I will not say a word in defense of Devin Nunes. Um, look, the House Intelligence Committee, like the House in general, is filled with a bunch of nutcases. <laughs> and... One of the things about the House is that a lot of them aren't very bright. And one of the other things about the House, I mean, it's true. I mean, I, you know, they're just, it turns out that getting elected to the House is not an IQ test, right? Literally any idiot could do it. Right. <laughs> um, 
And also the, the N is large, right? There's a lot of people in the house. And so the, the, the curve covers a lot of ground. And the, the, the low end of it, there's a lot of area under that curve. Um, and um, are you supposed to be speaking in defense of them? Yes. <laughs> this, is absolute, this is absolutely a defense, and I'm coming to the I defense. I thought there wasn't going to be any math at this podcast. No. So hang on. The other thing is that the partisanship is extreme, and all of that is totally normal. And uh, what is unusual about the House Intelligence Committee is that most of the time, most of them are actually trying. Um, which is different, by the way, from the House Judiciary Committee, where none of the time many of them are ever trying. Okay, so that actually is a really significant difference. There's another really significant difference, which is that there's some really first-rate staff, uh, really first-rate professional staff, and when you put those two things together, that oh, and there's a third really important difference, which is most of the time they're operating in secret, so they don't have to actually be the assholes that they are. Um, and when you put all those three things together, the institution, it doesn't work beautifully. And it doesn't even work well. But it most of the time does work at all. And what we've seen over the last few couple months is what happens when that basic level, and I, and I intentionally you know, frame it in a, in a non-glorifying kind of way. What happens when that basic level of functionality disappears because the chairman goes insane? Um, okay? Now, you take away Devin Nunes, and there's actually a chance that you can restore to that basic level of modest function. High-quality staff, low-quality moron members, highly partisan, but operating in secret and trying. And actually, if we could get back to that level, that'd be a really good thing. And... Um, and I think there's reason to be optimistic that in the absence of Devin Nunes, you might be able to get back to that level. So I won't be quite that harsh. There are a few um, uh, really excellent uh, uh, members on the House staff, uh, Vice Chairman Schiff among them. Uh, sort of the, the name of the game here in terms of congressional investigations and functional investigations is the Senate. Um, I will say that uh, after sort of a misstep in which uh, Richard Burr agreed to make this phone call on behalf of the White House and, and sort of it looked as though uh, the same sort of partisan stuff was infecting that investigation, uh, I personally really thought that that was sort of, that was the, the sign that there was, there needed to be a new committee, that the, the, these really weren't sort of legitimate efforts uh, anymore. Uh, after uh, last week's uh, SSCI hearing, which got a little bit less attention, uh, and the press conference that uh, Burr and Mark Warner held together, uh, I actually was uh, remarkably reassured. Uh, I think Burr really restored a lot of confidence um, that, hey, sometimes you can get dragged into the White House is crazy and it gets a little bit on you, uh, but you can actually come back and, and be sort of candid and do your job and do it well and restore the trust and legitimacy. Um, the House has more ground to make up, but I think at least that's a hopeful sign that it is possible to come back from where they are. All right. On that note of optimism, I want to thank everybody for coming out to the third Triple Entente Beer Summit. You guys have been a great audience. All right. Thank you.